This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Michael Warner, who is the Knox Professor of English and American Studies at Yale University. He was chairman of the English Department of Yale uh, from uh, uh, 2008 to 2014. He is the 2018 Tanner Lecturer at Berkeley. Uh, Michael, welcome to Berkeley. Thank you. Where were you born and raised? In the mountains of North Carolina, in a small town uh, in a Pentecostalist family. Uh Aha. And looking back, how did your uh, parents shape your thinking about the world? Well, it's it's an early experience in a kind of counterculture, I suppose you might say. Um, But also the the world of... uh, Pentecostalism in the mountains in those days was a very intense one, but it was a, it was also a very um, reading focused one. That is, I got a lot of acquaintance with the Bible and a lot of familiarity with theological argument, and that's really the training ground for my intellectual life. And and uh, were, were your was the whole family very religious? Did you talk about religious issues at the dinner table? Oh, oh, Lord, yes. Um, And my mother, uh, I grew up with my mother because she was divorced, and she had uh, three marriages, each of which was more unhappy than the one before. And the more unhappy she got, the more deep she went into the world of faith healing and Pentecostalism. So uh, it was an inescapable element of the environment. There were Bible studies several times a week and prayer meetings, and she would speak in tongues while vacuuming the carpet. So it was... It was constant. Now, now in your work, there is a recognition and an acceptance of the emotional element often in writing and speaking and public discourse. Is this the the root? I'm sure I learned it there, (laughs) absolutely. Uh, And so then where did you, what was your public education like? Or did you go to religious school? Well, I was sent to religious school, uh, Oral Roberts University. which was the only university that was really acceptable to the family. And, uh, and so it was quite a while before I joined the, what we would think of as the mainstream of secular intellectual life. That, was, that didn't really come till graduate school. And, and this undergraduate uh, uh, study at Ororop, is that primarily biblical study, or do they offer secular courses? Well, there's no philosophy department. If you want to study philosophy, you do so in the theology department. Um, and fortunately, I found a very sympathetic and protective teacher who was an English professor, and that set me on the path toward English. And uh, in, in was, was this a awakening that occurred over time? Oh, yeah. Over time. Oh, yeah. The decompression process was slow. And, uh, and moved by stages because I also had to deal with being queer and it's not an easy environment to do that in. You would get thrown out, of course, if it were open or suspected even. Um, so, yes, it took a long time to make all the adjustments to secular life and queer identity. And, and so uh, after the Oral Roberts experience, you basically said, well, I'm going to pursue my studies, but I'm going to move to the secular world. Tell us a little about that transition. It doesn't sound like it's an easy one. No, it wasn't easy because uh, one of the things about growing up in a religious subculture is that you don't feel um, entitled to uh, a a first-class education. No one ever mentioned to me that I could have gone to a place like Berkeley. Uh, it It was kind of unthinkable. So, uh, first of all, just figuring out what is the map of institutions outside that world um, that I could attend was a challenge. My father had gone to the University of Wisconsin, so that was a kind of easy default path, and I did a master's degree there. And while I was studying at the University of Wisconsin, I realized that everyone there was reading all this exciting new work that was coming out of Johns Hopkins. So, 
somehow I decided I gathered up the courage to apply to Johns Hopkins, and that's really the event that changed my life. That 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 steered me in a whole new direction. And what did you do your dissertation on? Uh, on 18th century American literature. It became my first book. I uh, I got interested in how print, the the world of print, seemed by the 19th century to already be taken for granted by people as the real matrix of social life. So I, I, I began wondering how that came to be, when did that happen, when did that come to be the case, and, uh, and pushed my studies backward into the colonial period. I like to ask my guests, uh, what are the skills and temperament required for the scholarship or the work that they do. You are a social uh, critic, a a literary critic. Uh, uh, What what do you see in retrospect as the skill set that goes with with these uh, vocations? Well, I guess my understanding of that changes over time as the surrounding world changes. I I realize now that... um, that world of Bible study that I came from had trained me in very intense, sustained concentration on a text. And that, I think, is something that's rarer and rarer as people uh, read more and more from screens and in a distracted state. Um, uh, so I, I feel lucky to have, to have grown up in that culture of the Word, in the intense investment in the Word, and a willingness to spend a long amount of time with a page. So that's one thing. But the, uh, in, the intensity of, you use the word emotional, I'd say you know, the, the full body, full spectrum intensity of that world also uh, disposed me to think about how language circulates in the world and the full range of effects that it creates in social life. And, and what about temperament? Uh, well, um, there's a kind of polemical disposition in that religious subculture that I guess carried over into academic life. Uh, this was a, a world in which uh, churches regularly went through schisms of various kinds. We were always picking up and moving to another church because the preacher seemed not quite orthodox on a certain point or we became less orthodox on a certain point or something like that. So the primacy of argument and the, uh, and the strong feeling that went with argument was, I guess, something that carried over into intellectual life, although I've also learned to uh, not cast people into hell for disagreeing with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting because you, you grew up in an enclosed environment, so to speak, yeah. and then you moved to the larger secular world. Exactly. Now, in your work, there is a, uh, a focus on marginal groups, yes. on outsiders, yes. on the integrity of those groups, yes. on the extent to which they can affect social transformation in the larger society. So this, these, 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 these various experiences Experiences uh, were a kind of training, I guess, for the the focus that your intellectual life would take. Absolutely, I am. I'm keenly sensitive to the tendency to foreclose the world of the excess of the acceptable and and create various margins or boundaries. And whenever I perceive that there is someone outside the boundary of the normal or the acceptable, my ears go up, and I want to learn more about that. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a kind of, uh, for many of us who've been through a formative experience like that, there's a kind of translatability between one countercultural sensibility and another. Once you are willing, once you once you are you have the experience of being willing to stand outside the mainstream, and you know that you'll survive, and you know that you'll find other people who are like-minded, um, it opens you to other formations like that and you and you are less willing to play the 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 blackmail if you like of normal life and by blackmail of normal life in the sense that 
uh, normal life wants to put you in a certain uh, way of thinking? Yes, right, exactly. Well, not just way of thinking, but whole mode of comportment, the whole set of priorities for what are your life goals and what's acceptable behavior of various kinds, yeah. Uh, Your first book, which I guess came out of your dissertation, was Letters of the Republic, Publication and the Public Sphere in 18th Century America. Help us understand your contribution there. In other words, it was known that uh, an important change occurred in the various kinds of journals, letters, and newsletter that newsletters that were coming into being at before the time of the revolution and after. Yes, in fact, the the going theory at the time was that this was just the natural consequence of print technology. There was a, a very important book by Elizabeth Eisenstein called "The Printing Press as an Agent of Change." Uh, and and so it was a well accepted area of inquiry that how how did printing change culture? It seemed to me that that way of telling the story was just too one directional or, or one dimensional. That before it was possible for print to really change much in social life, you had to have a certain perception of print, a certain way of using print. Uh, and because I was working in literary study. Um, this seemed like a natural thing to think about. Um, it was also probably important that I was working in colonial American literature, which is a, um, a funny little byway in English studies because uh, the colonial period in American literature doesn't have major novelists. The American novel doesn't start until after the revolution. It doesn't have major poets of the, like Wordsworth or Milton. So... Um, what does colonial American literature mean? It usually ended up meaning uh, people who were writing things for purposes other than literary consumption, Benjamin Franklin, for example. So the field kind of lent itself readily to um, someone who wanted to look at a wide range of uses of print and think about what is the standing of a text in the culture. And and uh, it's here that you begin to develop your theories of public and counter-public, yeah. especially the, the notion of how a new public came into being. Yeah. And it's not, as you just said, just that print changed everything. No. It was exactly. rather the audience contributing to what print could be. Exactly. Uh, and and therefore new ways of writing and publishing to reach an audience like that. The concept of the public, which we now take for granted as part of our social world, really emerged at the very beginning of the 18th century. And uh, and so I, th- that was a very striking fact to me. And it was trying to understand that, or trying to understand what are the different practices of writing and publication that go with that concept, that make that concept seem natural, or that that follow from the availability of that concept. That's what I wanted to think about. Um, at the time, the pathbreaking work of Jürgen Habermas on the public sphere was still uh, untranslated into English. I had to read it. I don't read German, so I had to read it in a French translation. Um, the English translation came out in the late 80s. Uh, and... Uh, I had groped my way toward a lot of the same perceptions or the same themes. Um, so it was, a, uh, it was, in retrospect, the right moment in history to be thinking about that. And, and the picture that emerges in your book, uh, I'm, I'm tr- trying to come up with a term, it, it's uh, the, 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 the written word and its relation to its audience is is almost like a very good seminar with discussion, yeah. so that 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 the people who are reading uh, are also engaging and feeding into the creation of a community. Well, um, that's the theory. Yeah, that's, that's the, the theory. Now, in fact, 
um, the concept of the public derived from broadcast modes of publication, which okay. don't have that closed circle of community discussion at all. Mm-hmm. In fact, they succeed to the degree that they sell more copies, get mm-hmm. more distribution than uh, than the responses come back. Right. So it's asymmetrical. And broadcast publication is is crucially asymmetrical. That's the whole. But but structure. in your but in your book, your as you come to terms with the public, it's very different from the public as we know it today. Well, of course, yes, because broadcast media were right. really all that there were right. then, and there yeah. was no such thing as social media. Right. Um, so uh, so, but that's another subject: is how it's changed you, today. But the but the in the world dominated by broadcast printing. Um, and later by broadcast electronic media, the, the asymmetry is very important. And so in order for it to really look like the culture of a democracy, sometimes the response had to be faked. Uh, letters to the editor uh, were often written by the editors. There, it was important for it to look like a two-way conversation, even when the interests of the publishers was often in maximizing the imbalance. So, so then your, your theory, as it emerges in the book, is really about a possibility, the implications of what was really going on. Yes. Uh, so there are, several, there are several key things, I think, to understanding the way media work in this kind of modern society. And one is that there is an imaginary uptake of what the social world is, that is, you you look at a printed op- object and you are, without even knowing that you make this assumption, you are assuming that um, countless strangers are also looking at the same thing. We're talking about the colonial period. The colonial yeah. period, but also the contemporary period yeah. when we're looking at broadcast media. Yeah, okay. so, so the background awareness of all those unseen strangers is a key part of how the whole phenomenon works. It's not just that you read a book that was copied by a scribe in your monastery and only three people have read it. Uh, Or, you know, if if that's what the situation is, you're not dealing with a public in the modern sense. So there's an imaginary uptake about what the nature of the social world is, and that gives a special prominence to the coexistence of strangers. I think this has been the great theme of, of all the work I've done on publics is the, is the primacy of stranger sociability in the forms of modern life. And that, that's really transformative, and it's, and it's not something that people notice because it is so much at the level of their imaginary uptake, their background assumptions about how language circulates in the world. So strangers come to have a different importance to us. Um, they're not just foreigners who happen to be traveling through your village. They're not just people away off somewhere that you don't have anything to do with. They can be intimately involved in your world. And, uh, of course, nationalism is one expression of how people can imagine themselves being related to strangers. But all kinds of public debates and social movements and counter-movements are formed by people's willingness to think of themselves as co-involved with strangers. And what then becomes important in this early period is uh, the discourse involved ideas of citizen autonomy, republicanism. So they become the vehicle for uh, a common language that is the basis of our democracy at that time. Exactly. So if you, are, if you are suddenly finding yourself in a world where you are writing to an audience of strangers, how do you understand the difference between who you are as, as someone speaking to strangers and who you are in the rest of your life? That difference can be pretty marked. Uh, and in the 18th century, there's a language of political thought called republicanism uh, in which you... Uh, the, the fate of the republic is in the in the hands of the people who have enough virtue to put the common good above their own private good. So this language of the common as opposed to the private was what enabled people to speak to strangers in this broadcast environment in that way. And and does the 
recognition of a world of strangers then legitimate the conversation in some in some way absolutely and yeah. also also shapes it so you uh, you are speaking to strangers in in the cases that we're talking about in the in a public sphere you are speaking to strangers whom you imagine as your contemporaries and whom you imagine as co-involved in the life of your society and uh, and that shapes things in a lot of ways it means that your sense of history is organized around the rhythms of publication and reception and answering dialogues in public debate. So uh, it became habitual for people to think of print or public language as uh, positioned on a timeline of the present. Again, in, in contrast to the reading of a manuscript that might have been lying around for decades or centuries without losing any of its mm -hmm. urgency, mm -hmm. um, things became contemporary. And newspapers, of course, the greatest marker of that. They carry their date on the front page and they circulate in a very short time frame. And why was Benjamin Franklin such a pivotal figure uh, in, in this transformation? Well, I think you know, the obvious answer, the short answer, is that he, because he was a printer. Um, and he was an extremely astute printer who realized that the business he was in um, was transformative. And he, he had encounters um, early in his life that set that imprint. His, his, he was an apprentice in his brother's print workshop when his brother got into trouble with the authorities. And his newspaper was briefly printed over his name as a sort of ruse to get around the censorship. So he understood early on that printing was a kind of rival uh, to traditional forms of authority and that you could appeal to strangers in, in a persona, in a, under a pseudonym or anonymously and thus veil yourself uh, and, and make that separation between the the, the common good in your private life very sharp by not even appearing in your own name. Most of, the, most of what Benjamin Franklin wrote, he did not, except for his correspondence, he did not write under his own name. And that, I think, was a transformative recognition. He was ahead of the curve on how public discourse was going to work in the modern world. This case study is one in which the, the, the focus is on the emergence of a public, and it's a, it's a new public. Yeah. So there is social transformation by what in the beginning must have been a marginal group, but yeah. which in effect changed the world, yes. and the world became the world. So th this may be the ideal that uh, is missing in other, your later works, where you're focused on the marginal, protecting the integrity of the marginal groups. You, and, and you see that as a way of potentially transforming the whole. Yes, that's true. Although the other thing to be said there is that the dynamics are not unrelated. That is... Mm -hmm. uh, when you get a counterformation, a social movement, for example, uh, it is formed through the same kinds of stranger mm -hmm. sociability as the dominant mm -hmm. public and, and has the same contemporaneity, the same relation to a social emergence that the dominant public has. So um, one of the points that I make in the, in the essay on publics and counterpublics is that counterpublics are publics too, and they're formed by the same media infrastructures. It's not just that you have local communities of dissent. You have communities of dissent that have the same dynamics of public formation that we see in the dominant culture. But in, 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 it is the case that the ability of the marginal groups to transform the whole uh, that capacity 
is not one that is as easily realizable. That, that That's I, right. Yeah, exactly, that, yes. Yeah, right. right. Okay. So, so your insights uh, that emerge in the first book is really uh, an ideal, not subsequently as easily realizable. Well, that's right. Well, um, that's also been a theme in, uh, in a variety of inquiries into this topic. Habermas himself um, famously argued that the public sphere was a kind of ideal in the 18th century that was betrayed by modern societies mm-hmm. in the 19th century. Um, when public media increasingly became vehicles of advertising so that the public would be, in a sense, sold to the advertisers as a potential audience for consumption, uh, and so on. And and liberal editors agreed to draw certain boundaries around the sphere of acceptable discussion. So um, even there in Habermas, and this was a book that was written in German in the 60s, there was a strong emphasis on the way the ideal had never fully been realized. In fact, Habermas was working on the um, the Frankfurt School's idea of imminent critique, that what you needed to do in order to criticize bourgeois society was not bring to bear on it extraneous criteria of value, but judge it by its own ideals, hold it to its own best version of itself. And the best version of liberal bourgeois society is that in the ideal of the public sphere as a as a place where people can argue or contribute representations of, of the good life from any point of view whatsoever. In fact, it doesn't work that way. But imagining that it might uh, mm-hmm. turns out to be a powerful way of seeing what are the limits of this society. Uh, in your, your book, uh, which I think takes its title from the essay you just talked about, Publics, uh, and and counterpublics, uh, you you talk a lot about uh, the emergence of counterpublics. That yeah. is, and tell us a little about counterpublics and how they are in a way like publics, but in some ways different. Well, uh, the impetus for this came from thinking about social movements in the 20th century, the women's movement, the gay movement, civil rights movement. How are those publics? And, uh, and this was a much debated topic once uh, Habermas's book got translated into English. And I realized that once you started thinking about it, the, the uh, existence of counterpublics goes all the way back to the emergence of the concept of the public. It was no sooner imagined that strangers could be organized this way than people began to imagine rival or excluded groups organizing themselves in the same way. And in fact, my uh, my current research is about how early evangelicalism can be understood as a kind of counterpublic. Um, evangelicalism that emerged in the 18th century is uh, significantly distinguished from previous versions of Protestantism by its willingness to preach to strangers uh, mm-hmm. and by mm-hmm. the aggressive use of public media. Um, uh, and so uh, the Protestant religion got reoriented around the language of conversion that allowed people to think of addressed to strangers as the primary mode of religiosity. So in that sense, evangelicalism is a, is a strong example of the new mentality of the public sphere. However, it was also combative, and it, all, it understood itself as trying to call people out of the what it understood as the dominant culture, didn't have the language of the secular to name that dominant culture, but uh, it, that language grew out of this conflict. Uh, so you have, a, you have an interesting split emerging in the 18th century between um, the increasingly secular world of the political public, Benjamin Franklin again being a key example, and the counterformation of people who saw the same public media as an opportunity for conversionistic outreach. You make a great uh, deal of the fact that these countercultures have the potential, because of the way they're using the media and they're addressing strangers, to transform 
the the whole yes. basically. So so there is a so there is an emphasis on media, but also how the media in a in different hands becomes something different. It, yeah. This this theory is very applicable to what's going on now, and I want to draw that out of you in a way. In other words, social media of the electronic and internet kind yeah. is new. And yeah. what we've witnessed recently is the 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 uh, uh, emergence of a counter public that has many of the characteristics that you describe in your. Uh, You're thinking of the alt right, for example. Yeah, yeah. the alt right. And let me just quote something that you say here: "Public discourse says not only that is for this this uh, uh, counter." public let the public exist but let it have this character speak this way see the world in this way it then goes in search of confirmation that such a public exists with greater or less success success being further attempts to cite circulate and realize the world understanding it articulates yeah well, okay, so you can see how the alt-right is a, is a version of that because uh, in that world it's understood that American means person like us. Mm-hmm. So this is a way that, uh, this, is, this is a bit of a paradox and it's a, a, a complication that pu- counter-publics very often think of themselves as publics in waiting, as that is to say as, as striving to be the dominant public and as giving voice to what they think should be the dominant public. And this is a really good example, because um, the alt-right, of course, knows that it's embattled and, uh, and in a way minor, uh, but uh, also uh, aspires to be the dominant public itself. And that contradiction is visible everywhere. So people will, will speak with rage and resentment uh, and hostility that marks their awareness of being marginal. At the same time, they will act as though all good Americans already agree with us. And so they're trying to realize their version of what it means to be a member of the American public. How have their actions as a counter, if we look at them as a counter public, how have they changed the media the new electronic media, which which they have seized on yeah. to build up their base. Well, it might be better to put the question the other way around. Okay. Uh, because what the, they've realized that we inhabit a different media ecology now. And the Publics and Counterpublics essay came out in 2002. We didn't have social media no, then. No. <laughs> so, uh, but I did, and I did already understand that uh, that something was changing with the availability of the internet because um, that rhythm of contemporaneity that allows us to know where we stand in history with all these other strangers who stand with us in history was beginning to shift. So instead of weekly newspapers or daily newspapers, you suddenly had 24-7 access of websites. Mm -hmm. And uh, that sense of time has continued to evolve in social media. But more profoundly, I think the social media break the broadcast model that's always been the underpinning of Mm. our sense of a public. So rather than sending uh, material out as far and wide from one point as you can, um, in in the late 20th century, for example, we had three broadcast networks that really dominated everybody's sense of what the news was. Suddenly you've got as many points of origin as there are people. And, uh, and people imagine the texture of their public world more in terms of networks than in terms of publics. And that has, uh, that has fractured the language of the public in a really profound way, and I don't think anyone knows quite how to handle that. Mm-hmm. The broadcast media still exist, and so we still have the sense that there is something like a national public out there, but you can see from... Uh, you can see from just from polling numbers, from the persistence of a very large percentage of America that seems quite immune to the news that uh, the rest of America is absorbing, that the the public no longer exists as a, if it ever did, as a single sutured space. 
And and this undoubtedly contributes to the fragmentation of American politics. Well, that, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And therefore, to the um, to the uh, strength of resentment, um, because uh, I think all parties are quite exasperated by their inability to reach this putative national public. And, and what do you see as the long-term implications of this? Is it just continued fragmentation? Uh, uh, that's, because, the, that's the fear, of course. Yeah. Uh, one has no idea. I mean, one couldn't really have predicted this state of affairs 20 years ago. Uh, so who knows how this media ecology will evolve, but it's, I think it's quite scary in its implications. That, um, so much of what we understand as democracy or, or as self-governance has to do with the ability of a world of media to hold itself together and to, um, and to be a space of mutual respect and mutual accommodation that when we no longer believe that that space exists, um, the, you have all kinds of very scary uh, opportunities for fascistic and other kinds of politics to emerge. Uh, let's talk a little uh, now about your book, uh, The Trouble with Normal, a book that is most known for its criticism of gay marriage. Yeah. And again, this book was written in the 1990s, I That's think. Right. When, right. When, gay mari- when the idea of marriage was still a controversial one within the gay movement and did not yet seem to be an inevitable future, there was a lot of argument among gay people about whether this was the right priority for the movement or whether it was the be-all and end-all of the movement, as some people were proposing. Two ideas that struck me in that book, and there are many there. One is the extent to which the institution of marriage was a sector of privilege yeah. uh, that excludes those who are not married. And uh, talk a little about that, because it's a set of privileges, rights to custody of children, rights to inheritance, uh, and, and also um, medical coverage yes. at, at that time. Uh, talk a little about that, because that's, that's very well, important. It is. Um, in the popular imagination, marriage is just one thing. It's a kind of recognition of a loving relationship. And that's the way it was being sold to gay people. Uh, uh, we have love just the way straight people do. Why shouldn't it be recognized just the way straight people's love is recognized? Um, well, fine, except that marriage isn't exactly that. You can have marriage without love, and you can have love without marriage. And so that didn't seem like a very satisfactory account of what marriage is. And when you started to look into it, um, you realized that marriage is a is a enormous bundle of different um, privileges and obligations. Um, you get your spouse uh, has uh, special access to medical care and to death rights and disposition of the body and hospital visitation and child care and all kinds of other things that uh, we just take for granted as a single package. But that hasn't always been the case, and it isn't always the case in other uh, legal systems like the French legal system. So I wanted to just drive a little space between the language of love and recognition, and the actual politics of what on the ground happens when people get married. Because it seemed to me that gay people who had lived without this institution for a long time had developed their own patterns of intimacy and their own patterns of social life and their own patterns of mutual care, especially after the AIDS crisis. It was a very robust um, world of mutual care. And it seemed that it was suddenly being shoehorned into this model around the monogamous couple. Uh, and, uh, and we weren't thinking creatively about other ways that those rights and obligations might be distributed among your intimacies. Why, why not uh, uh, think about experiments in this form like the French were doing at the time? Um, and I thought that language about how marriage is just love was what was preventing people from thinking about other possibilities. And, and the second point that emerges is the, ex- the extent to which 
the 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 counter public uh, represents uh, a variations in the way people relate to each other. That's right. Which has an integrity of its own and uh, should be respected. And importantly, by letting gays marry, you threaten that integrity by co-opting people into marriage. Well, that's certainly the that's certainly one of the uh, part of the potential, and and it depends not just on the legal institution because people can want that legal institution for all kinds of reasons. You know, if you have a partner um, who and you're facing sickness and death together, marriage is a very useful tool for protecting you from you know, uh, homophobic families or whatever. Um, But to the degree that gay people began to internalize the idea that all we want as gay people is to be accepted into the mainstream and be married just like straight people, they foreclosed um, all the richness of public intimacies in the gay world. They foreclosed all the work of experimentation that queer people had been doing for generations. Um, and I, I worried about that, especially because in the queer world, memory is very fragile. Uh, you don't learn from your parents how the gay world is structured. So there's not a whole lot of intergenerational transfer. And it seemed to me especially uh, dangerous that the, the, uh, the language of marriage would just colonize the imagination of younger gay people. They would come of age thinking, oh yes, this is the experience that valid, this is the, the goal that validates my experience as a gay person is marriage. In fact, I think that has happened for a certain stratum in the gay world. Um, fortunately, I think there's also been a counter movement. That is that, that uh, a lot of younger people coming of age have been disillusioned by that language and have seen its, its shallowness and its falseness. Um, the trans movement has been really powerful in reawakening people to all the exclusions that are performed by traditional gender identity and marriage. And so I think there is a, uh, a very powerful um, movement in gay life against the narrowing that marriage represented at the same time that marriage can be a step toward other kinds of recognitions. I think it only works that way if people refuse the narrowing through which marriage was sold to us. Two very different groups, the the, uh, uh, queer community on the one hand, the alt-right on the other. And in both cases, you have counter-publics dealing with the public. What is your thinking about the dynamic between counterpublics and publics? Because sometimes we may want a greater realization and sometimes we may not. Oh, absolutely. So there's uh, there's always a kind of oscillation. This This is the dynamic of history and politics in a society like ours is when is your public trying to be the dominant public? And when is it withdrawing and, uh, and in, a, in, in a sense, embracing the barriers that exclude it in order to create a space of experimentation? And I think both dynamics are important. Both dynamics have been there in every movement, including those evangelicals I was talking about earlier, because you can see in evangelicals a constant oscillation between the idea of drawing apart from the mainstream society in order to create this better, reformed, more Christian way of life and insisting that they represent the Christian nation that's been there all along. I think just about every counterpublic does that to some degree or another. And, uh, and so queer life has been in many ways really enabled by its marginality, by its exclusion from the open space of inspection and surveillance and whatnot that goes with being public. As I think about your intellectual odyssey, it seems that the your evangelical beginnings, your movement to the secular yeah. world, then into the uh, history of the colonial period, that there is a, there is a, 
a training ground for perception yeah. of these dynamics. Yeah. Is that a fair assessment? I, I think that is. I think that's accurate. Although it, all these continuities only become clear to me in retrospect. Right. It never is obvious at, at the time. Uh, I have uh, been very fortunate in my life to be able to move from one topic of inquiry to another and reinvent my expertise such as it is. Um, you know, many people in the academic world find a subspecialty and go into it and own it for the entirety of their careers. And I have not been that kind of person. I've always been attracted to those uh, topics or areas of inquiry that no discipline seems to own and no one seems to have a good language for. So the public sphere, when I started working on that, what was that? Was that political science? Was it literary study? Was it history? Um, was it philosophy? It was all of those. And secularism uh, later on in my life, or, or queerness, what discipline owned those topics? And uh, those, those are the ones that always seem really exciting to me. So I, I have experienced myself at those moments as leaping from one mm. to another in a way that required radical re-education. I've had to go off and, and uh, learn whole new bodies of work each time. And, and then it turns out I've been working on the same problem all <laughs> along. So uh, if, if I were trying to understand you better... Or is it fair to say you are a social libertarian? Oh, I wouldn't use the language of libertarian, no, okay. because okay. that because that presupposes that individual freedom is the is the foundational building block of everything. I am I have a very strong communitarian side. If you want to think mm-hmm. in terms of those oppositions, I I uh, have always been interested in the way what counts to us as a as a meaningful freedom is conditioned on our participation in a life world of others. And, uh, and queer life is a really great example of, of that. You can't really get very far um, being gay or being queer just by declaring your personal liberty to be so. You have to find other people. And you have to find other people on a shared mode of sociability that allows you to be gay or queer or whatever in a way that that will prove to be satisfying to you. It's always a process of mutual discovery, mutual elaboration. So I think that, uh, um, you know, and I think this is the the backbone of the counterpublic concept, is that it is a life world of, a life world transacted among strangers, really, um, that is the enabling condition for anything that will count as personal freedom. Your, your Tanner lectures here will be put online in, in audio form. But but my sense from hearing your first lecture is that you're struggling to find uh, a counter-public with regard to climate change and the environmental movement. But there is a concern about its co-optation. Exactly, yes, right. So it, in, in, in one way, it feels like the gay marriage issue all over again uh, and has strong personal connections for me because the particular corner of the queer world that I have the strongest affinity to is a is a network of radical fairies that's built around a system of communes. That is, these are intentional communities that date from the off-grid movement of the 70s, 60s and 70s. And the off-grid refers to the grid, not the electric yes, grid. Yes, the electric the, power grid. So there's, there is, a, in the, the radical fairy world, is a really remarkable uh, convergence between, um, if you like, uh, gay life and the back-to-the-land movement. It's been around since uh, one of the founders of the gay movements is a man named Harry Hay, who got dissatisfied with um, mainstream organizing and and tried to steer gay life toward this radically utopian uh, back-to-the-land vision. Now, that was a long time ago, but many of these communes still exist and are organized around uh, ways of thinking of community and experimentation that that off-grid movement really sheltered. So, um, when I look around now at climate change and the importance of the electrical power grid to dealing with climate change, I'm realizing that there was a there was a strong vision of 
um, what infrastructure ought to be for a livable society, what the grid represented, how it wasn't exactly the livable uh, uh, infrastructure of a, a good society, that that movement developed in the 60s and 70s and is now really uh, for increasingly forgotten and foreclosed by the necessity of reforming the grid for climate change. So I have taken up this project partly as a way of thinking about where, where is this world headed uh, in the age of climate change? What does it mean to be alive at this moment? But also, more particularly, what can be retrieved from that tradition of contrarian thought? One final question and, and a brief answer, if you can, because we're nearing the end of our time. Uh, if our audience watches this and they become attuned to the notion of uh, publics and counterpublics, is is there something they should think about? What should do they bring to the focus on the conflict between counterpublics and publics? Is it liberal humanistic values that help you evaluate uh, uh, what? a counter-public has to contribute? Uh, well, I suppose that's true. And many of my friends think that liberal is a bad word. Fine. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, uh, when Martha Nussbaum reviewed my book, she called me the queer John Stuart Mill. So <laughs> I, guess, I guess I ought to own the label. I think that uh, liberalism is, uh, is a kind of problematic term because it, everyone thinks they know what it is. And, and it's, in fact, a very fractious and developing tradition that can mean qu quite a lot of different things. Most people I know who think of themselves as left critics of liberalism nevertheless have a lot of the principal values of liberalism, like the harm principle. And so I, I suppose, yes, I do have a uh, some central commitments that I can recognize as being part of the liberal tradition. However, I'm also uh, trying to be aware constantly of what's excluded uh, and what are, what are usually set as the boundaries of acceptable behavior in a liberal public sphere. Well, on that uh, note, uh, Michael, I want to thank you very much for coming to the Berkeley campus well, and you. taking the time to be on our oh, program. Oh, it's been a pleasure. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.